Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. Did you all feel like you were um, fulfilling yourselves creatively as well as commercially? Um. I feel like we did, you know, um, I wondered about everybody in the individuals and, and we started to look at the individuals right after second wave album. And we started to look at what we were saying to each other. So that was a big period for us as a group. And we knew that Bernard wanted to be pretty much an artist. And Dave always wanted to be like um, in a band. And I always wanted to be a producer. So we started looking at those three things and we did some things about it, but we really never got to the point where it was really, okay, we're going to set you up. But I wanted to do it like that. Uh, even when I bought the studio, I wanted to say, listen, we need to do all this stuff together instead of doing it separately. You know, we need to be under one house under one roof and saying, this is what we're going to do. If you if pick, you want to go out and produce all these different groups, let's keep it under the house of surface. Dave, you want to do some other bands or whatever the case may be, or stay in the same band, keep it under the house of surface. Bernard, you want to be a solo artist and do your thing, like doing all that kind of stuff, keep it under the house of surface. <clears throat> we talked about it, but it never came to fruition. And that's one thing, one of my regrets that I probably had of having success to where we had people's ear and their attention, but that window doesn't stay open. You know, so get that window when it's hot. And if you have other things that you want to do underneath that window or inside of that house or that window, you need to do them then, you know, because those windows close. They, they don't stay open forever. You, you, we, we were rolling like, because you mentioned we was always in the charts. We was rolling like, and even financially, you said, man, we're going to be making money. All day. It's never going to stop. But that mentality will get you in trouble. Because if you think that money's always going to be rolling, the records of hits are always going to be coming in. No, there's a timestamp on that. There really is. You know, and you got to take into consideration do as much as you can do while you are hot and try to spread yourself out as far as you can. And we just didn't do that. We didn't do that. And I think that if we would have done that, we would even be bigger, even right now as we're talking. You know, we'd be talking a different different style. You know, we'd be talking like L.A. and Babyface right now. You know what I mean? Things that nation would have. They, they, uh, they actually took their, their, uh, their qualities and they, they nurtured them. And it grew into this big giant thing, you know, and there's their success. We could have been doing the same thing even today. Or, yeah, or like Jam Lewis. Or Jam yeah. Lewis. Oof, man, you know. Well, we've got we've got our, our guys that done it before us and done it while we were here. You know, a lot of my style, really, believe it or not, as far as with the bass synthesizer and the drums and stuff like that, came from Jimmy Jam and Terry. You know, um, and you could tell by hearing some of the records, you know, not as, as, as big as they did it, but you know, we had influences from them, you know? Yeah, it's curious to me, uh, David, you know, in 91, the quality of the songs seemed still at, the, at that level to me, but then tracks like uh, Never Gonna Let You Down, you know, only got up to 17, and uh, they just weren't, 
you know, hidden like they did, even though I think the quality right. was there. How do you feel about that? Um, the quality was definitely there. Because if you listen to that record, the record sounds beautiful. Very well done, very well written. Everything about it was good. Was there uh, things lacks in the record company? Because, you know, record companies has a whole lot to do with uh, how records get, get placed with their promotions and things of that nature. So, yeah, and at the same time, during that time period, there was a real big shift in the music. The music wasn't like the, ne the kids next door anymore. It was moving into something a little bit different. There was still a lot of love in the air, but the, the content was changing. Now you was getting songs like Lick You Up and Down and, and Bling Bling and all these superficial things that were coming out that we weren't really into. But the world was. Well, let's say the country. The country, let's leave it out in the country. The country was. So um, the music was shifting. And as it was shifting, and that's when we kind of lost our spot there as well. Because, you know, we were still those guys. You know, did people still like us? Yeah, but, you know, it wasn't getting a lot of a lot of uh, ears from the record companies, that's for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how often the change from decade to decade has a major change in the music and the way the music industry works. You know, I mean, from mm -hmm. the 70s to 80s was a huge change. And then Big time. 80s to 90s, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, I want to mention a few tracks that weren't singles, but, um, you know, I really appreciate Um that first record, Gotta Make Love Tonight, was a really nice, you know, what I call a bedroom Beautiful. ballad, you know? Oh, I love that song. Yeah, actually, my brother plays saxophone, a little piece of sax on that record. Now, that was one of his first appearances on the first album. I don't think he appeared on any of the other albums, but that's when I hear, when I think of that song, that's what I think about my brother being a, being a part of us. And um, it's funny about that record. <laughs> I went into the studio after we had finished doing the song, but we had it was a totally finished, right? So I knew that the song was already written because Bernard had wrote the uh, wrote the words, right? So I was in there in the studio on my own singing the backgrounds, and then David Bernard came home and, it was, and I I could hear them in the house, you know. And I was like, and they, they was just kind of listening, it's like trying to trying to trying to get the little backgrounds in, right? <laughs> And I, I did end up getting it, but I said, you know what? I like it. I like it. So he kept it on the record, you know, but I was trying real hard to, you know, try to do my little style of Bernard, you know, trying to put that background on. So I really love that record. So it, it's, it's got a little thing for me in there too. And then Dave found his little spot on the vocal on that same thing. There was a little spot that he sang. So we all got a chance to do, do our little spot vocally on there. And if you listen closely, you'll hear me in there. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, people. If people miss that one, you got to go back and and give it another listen. Oh um, yeah, you've got to make love tonight. Beautiful. And I noticed David Z was involved with that first record, and of course he oh, had a, yeah. a print a Prince Paisley Park connection. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. With David Z, Dave, for y'all don't know, he was one of uh, Prince's uh, engineers. I'm not sure how we actually met, but he ended up to be. Oh, I know how we met. We actually met um, because we were we wrote a song for the Jets, and he was producing the Jets, and he liked the song. So he came up to me. I, I, I know clearly now. He said, "Listen, you guys are doing a record. Why don't we do this record together? You know, we produce it together, this record on the Jets, and then let me come in and do a song with y'all." And I said, "Hey, sounds cool." I mean, you know, of course he was Prince's Prince's uh, engineer, and he did pretty much produce Kiss. And that was so dope, you know, at the time, you know, so I'm like, yes, yes, let's do it. So we went into the studio, cut the song on the chest. That ended up to be a platinum record, that that uh, that album. And uh, we got a chance to uh, do that with them. And then he came in. Actually, we were out there in the same studio in Minneapolis because he took me to Prince's studio and all that kind of stuff. So that was all like lovely stuff, some excellent tidbits on, on just being with David Z, going into Prince's studio. And, um, and so we did the record and I learned something with him. There was a technical thing that I learned with him that I actually took on further. We used it on other surface records. We used it on the Gwen Guthrie record. Ain't nothing going on but the red. And he had this technique that he used on Prince, on Kiss. And 
it's it, it to make it less technical to talk about it. The hi hat. He took the hi hat pattern, right? He ran that pattern rhythmically into a box called the gate, and when the gate, when the hi hat would go into the gate, the gate would open up, and then I have a keyboard sound inside of that thing that you could hear the keyboard playing that rhythm of the hi hat. So if the hi hat was going, it would take the music that was going into on the keyboard, whatever that kind of thing is, right? And so when Larry LeVan brought me in the studio to finish up the remix on uh, the mix on, on Ain't Nothing Going On But The Rent, he's like, we need a keyboard on there. So I said, okay, so let's take this hi-hat pattern and let's put it inside of that gate. And then I'll take the keyboard and make a little effect. And the effect was... So it was doing that kind of sound. But all I was doing was just touching the keys. like dun, 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 dun. I wasn't playing it. Like, dun, 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 you know, I was doing all that. It was doing it by this little technique that I, that I uh, learned from David Z. So that was one of the invaluable things that I learned from him. That's fantastic. Uh, records. It was that's, so cool. That is really cool. I'm mm -hmm. glad you explained that. Very oh, cool. yeah. I don't know if you got it, but because it, it is technical. No, I, but, I well, know. I remember that part in that Gwen Guthrie mm -hmm. song too. But yeah, uh, so yeah. I'm hearing it, you know, as you're as you're telling it. So right, yeah. right. And of course, it was on "Lady Wants a Man," and I did it on the bass because he showed me with the bass, and I was really confused when I was trying to do it because I couldn't figure. My brain wasn't processing it because I like to play, right? And he's like, "Just, just playing," you know, all that kind of stuff. Like, oh snap, you know, like something new. And and that's what what he brought to the table, you know that that little jittery thing, whatever you want to call it. Hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned uh, just a, a moment ago the uh, Jimmy Jam Terry Lewis influence, and mm -hmm. I think uh, that song "Black Shades" definitely had some of that yeah, Minneapolis funk. Minneapolis, yeah, yeah, it did. And actually, who brought that was uh, one of my good friends, Josh Thompson. Josh Thompson, Gene Lennon, and uh, God bless his soul, Derek Color, Durkee, um, who wrote a lot of songs with me. He also wrote Jermaine, uh, Jermaine Jackson, Don't Take a Personal with me. But anyway, they brought the song to us. And I was like, oh, snap, the song's kind of hot. You know, I was just hoping that Bernard was going to like it enough to sing it because, you know, we were used to doing our own songs and we might have been a little bit snobby on not doing other people's songs, right? So they loosened up and they said, you know what, this song's hot. So let's do it. And I thought it was hot enough to actually make it as a single back then because the, the Minneapolis sound was starting to pop. But it didn't. But still, it still made it on our record as uh, one of those songs that, that was a little different for us. And the influence was through them because they were the writers. Yeah, and of course it came from Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah. I was curious if the label, you know, kind of wanted to downplay that side of the group because you were hmm. so successful with the other material. They did on the th on the third time around, yes, but it didn't do it on the second time around. So um, by the time the third three D came in, they were being a little bit more hands on. Yeah, because that one had uh, ten you guys were getting into like some of the New Jack swing flavor. On that oh, third, yeah. third one, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was part of uh, even Sony saying through uh, Johnny Kemp. When Johnny Kemp came out with uh, Just Got Paid, they really wanted us to do something like that. But we looked over and we said, you know, that's kind of ain't us. Why don't you let us keep doing, you know, like when we did Shower Mutual Love. Come on, man. Don't you let us go there, you know. So they loosened up their grip a little bit. And, and actually, they turned the grip around and say, we want more of Shower Me Which Love. We want more. And that's when the first time came in, which was probably a, a, our most successful record, which people don't know that it was. Um, but it was one of the biggest records, a, a gold single, a number one pop record. So, and guess what? After going gold on the album, gold single, Number one across the board, which was adult contemporary pop and R&B, we got dropped. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Who knew that? <laughs> 
So it was it was an eye opener. They actually dropped us from the label. Jeez. So. Do you remember, do you remember uh, David, uh, what was the first song you had a hand in that you ever heard on the radio? It was Falling in Love. I believe that's what it was, yeah. It was Falling in Love. So I bet you were and pretty uh, psyched, right? The first time I heard myself on the radio, it was more than psyched. It was kind of sort of unbelievable because... How did it happen? Because I'm sitting at the house. I get a phone call from a lady named May. I believe her name was May. She was Frankie Crocker's assistant. Who's Frankie Crocker? Frankie Crocker was one of the biggest DJs in my time in New York radio, WBLS. And she called me up. She says, hey, I'm calling for Frankie Crocker. I'm like, who? Frankie Crocker? How do you get my number? Right? Anyway. We're talking, and she says, well, Frankie wants to know if you do a show for him, he'll play your record. I'm like, really? And she said, yeah. I said, okay, all right, well, let's do it. As right. soon as I hang up the phone, I jump on my bike, I ride down Central Avenue, and here comes Frankie Crocker on the radio. So, and I heard it in a car, from somebody's car, and he said, I want to play a record by a good friend of mine in Jersey. David Pink Collie from Surface, falling in love. Huh? I'm a friend? What the? <laughs> I only agreed to do a, a, a show for him, and he plays the record. And I was like, that's my song on the radio. And they looked at me like, oh, what the heck? You know, I know, that's my song. That's my song. They didn't care, or whatever the case may be, but I, cer I certainly was freaking out. So I was literally bugging out, and that was the beginning of hearing my song over and over and over again on the radio, and that was definitely a big deal. And so I got tired of hearing it. They played it that much in New York. Only in New York, though. They didn't wow. play it that much in the rest of the country. And I didn't know anything about that either. I thought I had a, a worldwide hit, you know what I mean? But no, it was just in New York, Jersey area, the tri-state area. You know, nobody else played it. Yeah, I could tell you that because I came up in Los Angeles. So <laughs> you yeah. didn't hear it. Yeah. You did not hear that record. It was an East Coast record, the New York record, as they call it at the time. I also want to mention uh, on that second wave, Hold On to Love was another strong oh, yeah. uh, mid tempo track. I thought that could have been a I hit too. I love that thing because we had Regina Bell on it too. That's right. Man, and but see, that was kind of like almost. At one of our anthem songs, you know, that song was very dear to us just by the way it sounded, you know, and, and the, the content of the lyric and, you know, and it had all the elements of surface that really made surface really nice, the smooth vocal, the, 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 the artist that came in and lend their artistry to us, Regina Bell, had the traditional flute solo in there, and, and we had Vassal Benford who was uh, who was uh, one of our arrangers and he did that the little guitar thing that was in it but it was on keyboards you know that was one of uh, Tito Jackson's uh, additions to us he he uh, loaned Vassal Benford to us on that second uh, was uh, no was it the first uh, first album yeah he came in on the first album but we both brought him back brought him back on the second album so you know having him around was just beautiful too so there it was, you know, that, that record right there. That's like our anthem song right there. A lot of people don't really know it because you got to pick up the album and listen to it. That's second wave album, y'all. Exactly. Yeah, despite all those mm -hmm. hits, there were still mm -hmm. uh, more should have been hits. <laughs> yeah, that was a nice one. That's, that was really one of our favorites. And then Where's That Girl was another funky one, too. Where's That Girl was kind of fun funky. And, and um, it was weird, that one, you know, that it, me and Dave just started doing this groove that just normally wasn't like us, you know. And all of a sudden, here comes Bernard and comes up with this here lyric. Where's that girl, you know? And and I'll tell you, it was so different. We didn't. We thought that they weren't even going to think, think about that record at all. But there it is. And you got somebody 30 years later talking about, where's that girl? Really? Okay. I'll mm -hmm. buy it. And then on the last one, I got to mention too, uh, kid stuff, you know, I uh, really like your flute on there. And that's a nice, very atypical surface track. Yeah. And we had, um, I have a lot of nieces and nephews. 
And so I decided to just bring all of them. We had got together. We had got some little snacks, you know, popcorn chips and sodas and things of that nature. We said, oh, y'all, I want y'all to come over here and just be a part of this record. And that's where all those kids was. They were all my little nieces and nephews. <laughs> they made it on the surface record. That was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and you guys came back in 98 with Love Zone. Uh, really nice title track. And the sound, yeah. seemed, you know, the sound was intact, you know. That surface sound was still there. You know, it was still there because we were still there. But, you know, it, it didn't have the, the fanfare of the of the big studio that we had before. As a matter of fact, we tried to find, I wasn't really mixing records at the time. And um, and we were looking around for a, a good engineer that we could afford that could come in and do a great job. And we found somebody. Actually, I have to go look on the record to remember his name because he came in on that record. It was gone. Uh, I remember we called him Stone, I think. Uh, but anyway, he came in. I did a nice job on the record. I did pretty much that, that was it. But a lot of people don't know much about that record. That was a record we did uh, for RCA Victor in, in uh, the Orient, Japan. And we did it for them. And we also tied it in with a, uh, with a, uh, a, a Japanese tour where we toured, was it the Blue Notes? I think it was the Blue Notes at the time. And the Blue Notes were spread it around, you know, by Osaka, uh, you know, um, um, we had like about five or six cities from what I remember. Shibuya, uh, Shibuya, Rapunge. You know, there was a lot of different places that we had went. But the big thing about that tour was we got to ride the bullet, bullet train. And that was nice, you know, because I only heard about the bullet train, you know, by, by uh, TV and stuff. And we actually was on it. First class, too. Everything was so, like so cool, man. And it, it, it was like it flew, like it just floated, you know, so beautiful. To be on, it was moving real fast, really fast. It's called a bullet train for a reason. That thing can move, you know. So, we've got that experience out of it. And, um, let me see, it's where I met my first wife. And, uh, no, it, I met her before, before that, yeah. So, that was one of the other, uh, the other, uh, Japanese tours. My first tour I met her on, but she's gone. You know, she's no longer part of my life and came in and gone. Mm-hmm. We had two kids by her. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough. Um, when you uh, did some of the session work, you know, with the people I named in the beginning and you've touched on some of them, how did you kind of handle your business differently, you know, and work independent of surface? I guess it was kind of a natural thing. I mean, I was doing a lot of business stuff, um, I guess, because nobody else was doing it at the time. And we did eventually pick up managers. But in the interim, I guess I had my ear to the business at the time. But I was really just like a kid, you might say, learning it, you know, and trying to figure things out, you know. But some things I thought was naturally supposed to go down. For example, I'm, I'm going to move back to the surface business for a quick second, and then I'm going to show you about you know the business working with people like Aretha Franklin, these giants. But um, we've gone, we we did a little success with the first album. We had a hit with Happy, and we had a mild hit with, with Lately uh, on the first album. And so we get ready to do the next record. Now the first record when we did it, we had like a small budget. And it was like, I think I remember the number of $105,000 to do the first record. And then by the time the second record came around, the record company was going to give us the same budget. And in my head, I kept saying, this can't be right. We, didn't we have some success? Didn't we sell some records? What, what, what's going on? And so our manager at the time said, well, you know, it's, it's all based on the contract. If that's what the contract says, that's what we're going to have to do. I still, could, it, it, it wouldn't settle, it wouldn't settle on me. So I just went up to Sony at the time when we were out, uh, and we were out in uh, California, because that's who, who was heading off our record company at the time, the Sony branch, uh, the California branch. And I remember the guy's name was John. And I said, John. We feel that we should get more money. And 
the main reason why is because I know we had a, had a hit with, with Happy. I don't know how much money we, we, we earned yet because we didn't get the statements, but I know we did pretty good. So he says, well, I have to go look at the contract. It's, and we have to tell, tell you about it. I'm like, well, I think you should look at the contract. And so that was like my first big step as almost being a manager, you know. But I was doing it out of the fact that, you know, we had to do it. It was it was a necessary thing that we had to do. So he called me back maybe the next day or something like that. He says, well, you know what, David, you are owed some more money. And I'll tell you what it looks like. You are probably owed probably about somewhere around 250. And I looked at that number and I said, good enough for me. But was it good enough? No, it wasn't good enough. Should have been more. But. You know, we went from 100 to 200, so we went a little bit more than double. So I felt like we we accomplished something, you know, and later on we got rid of that manager as well because we felt like he didn't know what he was doing at the time, you know, and he was a beautiful person. And But at, at the time, he just, I don't think he was the right one for us. So we departed ways. Uh, but when we departed, you know, he did leave me with some beautiful things because he was the one that actually introduced me to Burt Baccarat, who I actually worked with Burt Baccarat on another uh, Aretha Franklin uh, record on the same album that I was working on. Uh, so that was immeasurable to meet Burt Baccarat and Carol Thayer Sager and go over to their house and sit down and, you know, break bread with them. And they even took me out to lunch and before we even went to the house. And, and that was done all by, by our manager, you know. And he just did that out of the kindness of his heart because he wasn't managing us at the time. Okay, so that was the first step of management. But then we had to do things because now I was on my own, doing these records on my own and stuff like that. So the biggest thing that I remember about anything about that business was that when I had to work with, work with Aretha, and she was very different because she didn't want to fly nowhere. So she didn't want to come out to the studio that I wanted to work in. And I wasn't going to argue with her. She said, well, I got to work here. I got to do this. But I said, fine. So we fly out to Detroit and we go into, I think, United uh, Studio. Is that the name of it? United Recording Studio. In Detroit? I used all her people. Yeah, in Detroit. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I used all her people. I didn't use nobody of mine, you know, except when we did the music. And it was so interesting. She had her cook. She had her Mr. Kincaid, her, her 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 security guy, and she had another guy. I can't remember his name, but it seemed like he was around just to keep her happy. <laughs> he just made her laugh, and I said, "Well, this looks like a kingdom here, you know. Like she's the queen, she's got a cook, she's got a jackal, and she's got her security, you know." And at the time, she even had her cigarettes. That I was surprised. Because she smoked cigarettes with that voice. And I would watch her. And I was like, man, I'm not going to say nothing to her because this is what she do. Because she does so well. Because she was 100% professional and 100% proficient, better than anybody I've ever been in the studio with. She literally came in, did her job, and left. She didn't have to do no overdubs. Overdubs is when you have to do something over. She did uh, three tracks from beginning to the end of background vocals. And I had Gordon Guthrie singing background on that record, and who was like a professional, like top, top, top background singer. And Reza Franklin came in and did three tracks and swallowed Gwen right up. You know what I mean? Like literally just, you could barely even hear Gwen after putting, after Aretha did her backgrounds, and she never stopped from front to end. She did, oh, did one track. Give me another track, pick. Boom. Here she comes. Everybody... My name is Pick as well. And and uh, she did all three. I was like, whoa. And then she said, she came in a studio and looked at everything and said, okay, what else are we going to do? Looked at me like that. And I'm, I'm looking at the queen of soul like, I can't tell her nothing. So I just kind of went with it, you know what I mean? And and, and, and I was a little bit, you know, uh, shy with her. I was very shy with her. Because I grew up as a child listening to her. She was bigger than life to me. So business-wise, it had nothing to do with nothing other than just, you know, pretty much hold her hand. That's all I could do. What year about was that? That was, um, well, it might have been 89, was it? 
89. I would say it was 89. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, Clive Davis, he, he, we were on the cover of Cashbox magazine at the time, and it was sitting right next to me, and, and, uh, and he complimented me on my success at that time. And, you know, Clive Davis, he wasn't no joke at that time. He was like a superstar, you know, and that was my first time meeting him. So I think it was 89. It was 1989. Wow. Um, mm -hmm. What? Um, ain't, no, ain't no more to say after that, huh? Yeah, the queen. I, <laughs> I, I, so I mean, oh, man, she, she's just like amazing. Yeah. Oh, then what, I, so there was so one more thing stories. amazing about her. One more thing. Uh, me and Josh, we went up to uh, see her at Radio City Hall. We're up there at Radio City Hall, and all of a sudden she's up there. And, you know, I have a new album coming out, y'all. I have some great producers. I have this uh, producer, David Pitt County, from the group Service. I'm like, uh, what? She mentioned my name, right? And then after the thing was over, we're standing there because Clive Davis was sitting up front. And me and Josh, we waited for him. He came by and he saw me. He said, he grabbed my shoulder. He said, what do you think of that? She mentioned your name on stage in New York City. I mean, Radio City Hall. And I'm like, oh, man. Like, it, it was immeasurable, you know, priceless. So that was good for, for both of them, Clive and Aretha Franklin coming off like that. So it was a, it was a big moment, uh, a big moment in my career. Yeah. Add that one to hearing you on the radio for the first time. Mm -hmm. Man, yeah. well, yeah. Um, so it's, it's been just been beautiful. What um, what record you know or performance in the studio um, do you feel the best about that you think of as sort of a signature David Pitt Conley, uh, you know, recording or offering or you know, flute solo or whatever? It might have to go all the way back to that first one. To that first falling in love. Um, yeah, because we were at the House of Music recording studio and we was on that Do What You Did, even back then, before we even met Bernard. Because the first time me and uh, Dave went into the studio on falling in love, we failed. And one of the reasons why we started to go into the studio and act like we could change the record from what we had already did on the little four-track recording studio. And so we went home, you know, pretty much not even speaking to each other because we, we didn't do a good job. And so we had took the four-track recording studio. I took it into the studio, hooked it up to the big boards and everything, and I ran everything that we did into their studio. And when the drummer came in, he did the drums exactly up against the drums that was there. And I played the bass uh, exactly like the way I did it on the four-track studio. As a matter of fact, I did it twice and didn't know that Shep Pettibone was going to actually use both bass lines uh, that became a part of the record. It was like a little bit different. But at the same time, I sat there and did this flute solo, and I just wanted to have a flute solo that um, the people could sing along with and something that I can remember, so I thought. Right? So... We did the, did the uh, flute solo, and there was a couple of tracks down there, but what, what Chet Pettibone, who mixed the record, what he did, he rearranged the solo. He didn't do it like I played it. He put it together, like he took pieces of the tape and moved this one here, moved this one there, and, and came up with this whole solo, solo. And I kept listening to it. I was like, whoa, that ain't what I played. And I kept listening to it, and I listened to it. I was like, I really like what he did. I like the way he played me. Right. So then I started learning it like that. And I still know it to this day. Exactly. Nope. by no, the new way. Can't even remember how I played it originally. I, I have no idea what it was. So that's gone in history. But it's the, the one that's there. Well, that's a tribute to him, too, because I know so oh, many yes. times, you know, folks are not that happy with some of the remixes. You know, I was amazed. I had to get amazed, too, because in the beginning, in the beginning, I wasn't sure that I even liked the mix because I thought I liked our mix better. But I was wrong. So wrong. Because Dave kept saying, I said, you better listen to that thing. I am totally busy, y'all. I'm sorry. Continue. Well, it's good that you had an open mind to it also and that everybody does, you know? I had an open mind, but when it hit me, it was like punched me in the face. It was like, how can I be so 
narrow-minded not to hear how could this record sound. We never had nothing like this, but then I really didn't really know. These are all new things, remember? So by me hearing it like that, the whole record, not so much the solo. I ain't talking about the solo. I'm talking about the record, the sound of the record. And they caught it right away. He listens to that thing. His, like, his mouth was wide open. He's like, oh. And then Ken Curry goes, so which one do you think we should put out? And I said, I think we should put out ours. And then he said, well, we're going to put out Shep's. He did it real calm. <laughs> and so we are, we're walking home. from. Um, we're going down to Port Authority to jump on the, on the bus to go back up to Jersey. And he just said, you know what, Pick? I think you need to get home and take a listen to that record. I personally ain't never heard nothing like that. Never. So maybe you should take a listen to it. So I finally came off my little horse. And I took that thing home and I kept listening to it. I was like, wow, he's right. The way that record was sounding. I said, I got to find out how to do it just like this. Because it was it's, it made a stamp in my brain. How the vocals were, how the flute sounded, how the bass was. He took two basses and made one bass line at it. Because one bass was bouncing on this side of the speaker. And another one was bouncing on this side of the speaker. And when they came together, I played something different on this one. But I played it over here. And it just made a sound. So that whole thing was a beginning of a new production style that I was inquiring along the way through Shep Pettibone and through, through me finally loosening up my brain saying, dude, you better, you better understand what you got here. You got something real special here. And I still think that that record right there is a very special sounding record. I still love the sound of that record with real drums, you know, the bass sense and and uh, the, the little small little guitar part that we had, but Karen's voice, the way her voice sounded, man. And people around the world loved that thing because I didn't really catch her voice until the people in France were saying, her voice, I can't help it. I have to hear it every day. I have to hear this voice. And this was years after that thing kind of made it. You know what I mean? They still listening to Falling in Love because of her voice. They just love her voice. And unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to really experience the success that she actually had from singing that song. Mm. Um, so in more recent years, you um, did like some jazz kind of stuff, right? Um, what what have you been up to more recently? Well, the jazz stuff, just, just touching that, I did do a record that was... I guess you might consider it jazz because it was mostly instrumental and it was okay. I had a couple of songs in there that I really enjoyed. And then I did another jazz bossa nova project with, uh, with a friend of mine over in England. His name is Tim Jones. I'm not too particularly proud of that record, you know, because it was, it was a new venture for me. And, uh, and, and the jazz stuff, I have an album sitting on the table right now that you would consider jazz, but it's really instrumental. And it's really basically the same thing I normally do because it has vocals on it and the chords and stuff. It's real tasty. And at some point, I am going to put it out. I'm not ready to put it out because out of nowhere, more songs have been coming out out of my head. And there's a, there's a project that I've been working on for the last couple of months. It's for a play, actually two plays. So I was invited to do some music for these two plays about Moses. One is about Moses. And um, it was real different for me. So I started doing that. But in the meantime, I was writing some other songs. And I said, wow, these songs, they, they, they're doing something a little bit different. And I did do what you might consider a gospel record a CD uh, back in we're 23 now, 16 I think it was 2016. No, no, 2017. Had to be seven, between 17 and 18. I'm not really sure. So I really did that. And so that kind of came out a little bit. It was nice. And uh, and I invited a friend of mine uh, that I call Preach from Long Island to be my vocalist on that particular project. And we actually wrote the album together. And so we did that. And uh, and this latest stuff has been for, for the plays. And at the meantime, my, my actual solo record on the flute has been taking a real back seat because I still can't get away from doing music with vocals on it. Okay. So I got a chance to write to, uh, to work with a couple of really good vocalists along the way. 
And so I think this album is going to transform a little bit differently to be more of an uh, inspirational record with vocals on it as opposed to just a straight up um, a straight up instrumental record, which you would consider jazz, which is not jazz. I did invite, um, well, the first jazz record I had, I mentioned Hubert Laws and Nelson Rangel. I would consider that song jazz. It was a, 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 renov- a rendition of Secret Garden by Quincy Jones. And I played the bass flute, which was Barry White's part. And Hubert and, Ranch- and Nelson, they, they did the other parts. So we kind of blend that. And I had Bernard Jackson singing the chorus, uh, the parts that uh, I'll be sure and Elder Barge. So he did that part for me. And I had... Um, Jack Paul Jackson Jr. was playing guitar on that thing. So that's really nice. And I think I was thinking about putting that back on this record as well. So I'm 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 a little unsure on where the next record's going to actually end up because I never turned it in yet. But it's still taking an interesting turn for me. And I just want to see where it's going to go. And I'm just going to wait on it before I release it. But I feel like I should be putting music more out, a, a little bit more music out, because part of my whole dream is to give back what just kind of fell on my lap. You know, if this music is in me and uh, it came so easy for me, you know, even though it's, it's challenging to stay, trying to be like the top of my game and all that kind of stuff, because, you know, I have a great flute now and I really love the flute and I want to represent it properly in my older age. I still want to make sure that I can still put out more music so people can enjoy a little bit more of me. So I don't feel like I put out enough of me. So in the future, I plan on trying to do a little bit more of me, you know, because I do have the facility here and I just want to just do more so I can give people more so that they can know just who Prince David is, you know, just to get, just enjoy me as much as they could. Well, so that's love- kind of my, my future goals. We love that. And um, do, you, do you ever perform or do you envision performing uh, the surface? Oh, yeah, we song? perform a lot. We perform a lot. We still do. I, I okay. perform almost like I try to perform at least once a month, you know, somewhere once a month, you know. And I have another singer that, that sings uh, the Bernard Spots and stuff like that. His name is John Fever. And uh, he's been singing with me for the last 10 years. Yeah. And it's under the surface name? Yeah. And I, I use also resurface. Mm hmm. Yeah. And how can folks uh, find out when you're playing, or is there a website? There is, but I haven't been, I haven't been, I haven't been tending it properly, to be honest. You can catch me on Facebook, though. Facebook under David Pitt Conley, and that's that's where you really will find out stuff that's going on with me. Facebook and Instagram, Instagram. I think on Instagram, I'm, I'm Prince David, Prince David Pitt Conley, but on 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 uh, Facebook, I'm David Pitt, uh, David Pitt Conley. Yeah. Excellent. Um, before I let you go, David, if you'll just uh, indulge me for a moment, I have a mm-hmm. friend uh, named Martin who's in the UK. He's a ridiculous uh, record collector. I mean, he's deep off into it, especially uh, early '80s, uh, you know, dance and R&B music. So uh, when he knew you were going to be on, he threw me a few things that he just wanted to know if you were involved. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them is. Um, if you played on any of the Joy or Starlina releases on the Eastern Records label. Starlina Young? Yeah. I actually wrote a song. It might go, it might have went past me. I don't know if I if I did or not, tell you the truth. Because we've haven't been in the same room together for years. You know, and uh and I don't know if she did something that I did. Or something that that uh, or maybe I didn't do at all. So that would be a question. I don't know. Yeah, were we you, together? Were we doing music together? Oh yeah. He says oh, you yeah. played on uh, "Good to You" uh, by Young and Company. I did. <laughs> I did. I did. Young and Company. That that was another group that was tied to uh, Starlady because um, her brothers was was in the group. That was Young. The the, the brothers Billy Young and. And uh, um, Kenny Young and and them, and then and then the girl Jackie, she was the singer there, that sang uh, 
I Like What You're Doing to Me, which was the platinum single. I didn't play on that one. I came in after that. Yes, yes. Younger Company? That's a yes. Yes. Okay. Good to you. That's a yes. He asks um, if you knew Eddie Saunders. Of course I know Eddie Saunders. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's one of the cats that came up with musically, you know, and uh, I've done music with him on, he has a project, uh, the, the Dancing Bus for Kids. You know, I played some sax on there. I might play some flute on there as well, but what I really remember is playing sax on there on his project, Eddie Saunders. And he also asks about Kevin Marshall. Kevin Marshall. Wow. That takes me back. Kevin Marshall was a beautiful cat, keyboard player, and a beautiful singer. We did some work together in my studio. He played keyboards for Whitney Houston. And it was just so short-lived. He died. Um, and, and I don't think I had enough time with him. Were we in the studio doing some stuff together? Absolutely. Um, when, when, uh, when Love Calls, You Better Answer. That was one of the songs. That's all I remember. When Love Calls, You Better Answer. And um, we did a lot of music together, but I don't know what happened because he had passed away. And, and I think a lot of the stuff that we did passed away with him. So he might have something that I don't even know about that that uh, that I did with him. He says a track called Freak, Freak It Out by Electric Smoke is uh, one he loves. If you know that track. I don't. I don't. Um, I don't get it, though. And then he also mentioned uh, Happy by High Tension. I produced Happy on High Tension before we did it on surface. <laughs> and that was when I first went over to England on Success of Falling in Love. And they wanted to hear the catalog that I had with me, David Bernard. And we were kind of like floating in between places. And I, I got an opportunity to produce High Tension I remember the name of the guy at the record company was Morgan Kahn over in, in, in Europe, in England. And we did it on them. And yes, I do know high attention. They were actually the ones that introduced me to EMI, who is Screen Gems, who were our company that we wrote under. So I signed, I actually got the, uh, the signing deal through High Tension that introduced me to EMI in England who liked me, but they said that since I live in the New York area, they'll give me a, a they'll set up a meeting for us there so that we'll go over there. And, and if they don't take me, then they would take me in Europe, right? So that's kind of how that happened with, with high tension. So, yes, they were very instrumental in the beginnings of the whole surface thing. The uh, last thing here is um, he was wondering what other musicians were on Falling in Love on Salsa. Oh, good one. Okay. We had the drummer. We called him Ignaz, Kevin Moore, right? And uh, he also works with Kurt from Aura. And he also played on Aura as well. He was the drummer. And, okay, so we had him. We had Gary Henry. Gary Henry was a child prodigy. He could play that keyboard. You know, he played the little fancy note on, on Falling in Love. He did that. Of course, we had uh, David Townsend on keyboards and guitar. We had Daryl Henry, uh, Gary's brother. He played a little, uh, a little piece of uh, uh, for uh, Fender Rhodes part, but he was on it. I got to tell you, he was there. And and Karen Copeland did all the singing. Me and her, I did a little background on that record, and but it was mostly Karen, and and I played the flute and the bass synthesizer. So that's that was them. I think that's everybody on the record. Yep. That's everybody on the record. So there you go, my man. Everybody from that song, Fall in Love, which I still love to this day. You know, plus it kicked off my whole career. You know, that was the one that kicked off. 1983, Falling in Love, Ricky Crocker. Good, good memory, David. You know, thank you so much for sharing uh, your great history and, and for all the great music that you've shared with all of us listening and watching this. It's nice to hear it again, tell you the truth. You know, sometimes you, it'll, it'll fall to the side. 
sometimes, you know, with the lack of really the big success, being there's no focus on it, sometimes you forget some of the things that you really did that people don't forget. And they remind you. So that's the one thing that I really love about you guys that that uh, are listening to the music and they're being reminded of what a good time it was when we were doing that music. And it reminds you of the time that you experienced by uh, experiencing the music. And it brings it back to me and it brings a lot of joy to my heart to know that I did something special for, for people because it was done special to me. Well, we'll look for some new music. Um, and uh, it's been great getting to know you. And mm -hmm. and uh, I'll let you know when this is going to post. And just okay. you know, much gratitude. Thank you for uh, participating. I appreciate it. The pleasure is mine. God bless you all. You too. Take care, David. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Truth and Rhythm. A big thank you goes out to our guest as well as to you, the viewer and listener. Also, much gratitude to Pleasure for supplying the show's funky opening and closing music. As a reminder, you can always access the complete list of linked shows by episode at funkinstuff.net. I urge you to support this program and receive the extra benefits along with that by subscribing to the Funk and Stuff channel on YouTube and sharing it with funk, R&B, and jazz lovers, joining Truth and Rhythm's membership program at Patreon, submitting a donation at funkinstuff.net, buying Everything is on the One, the first guide to funk book at Amazon, shopping at the Funky Things store for cool merchandise at funkinstuff.net, and linking through funkinstuff.net for all of your Amazon purchases. In addition, if you're an artist or anyone seeking proven, results-oriented, professional marketing, PR, writing, or editing consultation or production, check out the Media Services section at funkinstuff.net. Also, I encourage you to drop me a line at scottg at funkinstuff.net. I love the feedback, suggestions, guest requests, appearance and sponsorship inquiries, and just talking about my favorite subject, groove-based music. For now, and as always, this is Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on keep vibing on to the rhythm of the one.